Glory to God. I, I hear Nathan did an excellent job. Very important section of Scripture. Not that there are, are any unimportant sections, but how important it is to tame the tongue. And yet, as Nathan pointed out, James says, you need to tame the tongue, and then later says, nobody can tame the tongue. Just as the tongue was likened to the rudder on a ship, well, there's a captain steering the ship, and that's our heart that steers the tongue. And unless God becomes captain of the ship, we won't, we won't tame the tongue. And we're at the pinnacle of James's letter, and this is the point he's trying to make about godly wisdom versus earthly man-centered wisdom, that that godly wisdom has to come from God, and a change has to happen in the heart in order for us to receive that wisdom and live that wisdom. He's been, through the letter, calling our attention to areas in our life where our confession doesn't match our practice, our walk. And he's telling us, first, test yourself to see that you truly have the faith that saves. Saving faith ought to produce certain kind of works. And secondly, if you are in the faith, that we shouldn't be double-minded, that we shouldn't be mixing man's wisdom with God's wisdom. And we'll see today just how easy it is to do that and how it's our default position and how intentional we have to be to apply the gospel to our lives and replace our own wisdom with God's wisdom so that we will be wise in God's eyes, not wise in our own. It's important that you understand as we read today that James isn't saying that there's people with wisdom and people without wisdom. He's saying everybody has wisdom. The question is, what kind of wisdom do you, you have? So let me read James 3, 13 to 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We see a connection between godly wisdom, certain fruits, and peace. And we'll unpack that more as we go through this section. I'll be making five points today following James's outline. And the first point is that everybody thinks they are wise and understanding. It's implicit in the question, who among you is wise and understanding? It's a rhetorical, almost sarcastic type question. Oh, really? You think you're wise and understanding? Well, let's talk. Everybody thinks they're wise and understanding. 
Nobody's walking around saying they're a fool. If they do, it's more self-deprecating, trying to make themselves look humble or maybe even get out of some work. Right, guys? We know how to play the, I don't know, card, you know. Um, I see the disparity in my, my kids. When it comes to an electronic device, they're like, I don't need your help. I can figure it out. And then you ask them to do dishes, and they turn into complete idiots. How's the water and the... You know. Nobody says, I can do the dishes. You know, get out of my way. I I got it. So we've all got wisdom and understanding. In fact, God, as the pinnacle of his creation made in his image, has given all of us a measure of wisdom and understanding. It separates us from the lower animals. We can solve problems. We can ponder deep thoughts. We can ponder the existence of God in our own purpose. The problem is when we answer those deep questions on our own apart from God's revelation. And isn't that the fall of man? God provided man with everything, all the knowledge he would need, paradise, perfect relationship with him. Just stay away from this tree which represented doing it your own way, thinking your own thoughts. And man went for the tree. And we've inherited that nature. We've inherited that nature. I was reminded in a a sermon last week, Jennifer and I got to worship at Grace Community Church, and they honored all the police. They had a a, um, law enforcement appreciation day. I thought it was very well done. And they invited LAPD and sheriff and and CHP, anyone who would come and fed them a filet mignon lunch after, after church and said, we appreciate you. And then Pastor MacArthur went on to tell them why their job was biblically important, to restrain evil, to restrain sinners, that authority is God-ordained. And he said in his sermon that Yes, we've inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve, but we've also inherited the ability to know good and evil on our own to some extent. That was part of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we can attain to wisdom on our own. We see people who don't know God, don't know the Bible, don't know Jesus Christ, and they have wisdom, they have knowledge, they have intelligence. Nobody's saying that Christians are smarter or better We're saying our God is smarter and better. And by His grace, we are learning to be like Him, not so we can supplant Him or replace Him the way Adam and Eve wanted to, but so that we can worship and glorify Him and reap the blessing of a life lived according to godly wisdom. There's great blessing that comes with living according to godly wisdom. Again, nobody thinks they are a fool. Remember those uh, movies you watched in school on the the real to real kind of thing, and it had uh, Jiminy Cricket and Goofy. I'm no fool, no siree. I'm going to live. Remember, anyone see those in school? Yeah, right. And it was good wisdom, you know. It was like look both ways before you cross the street, and, and Goofy wouldn't, and you get run over. And you know, Disney's no. Source of biblical wisdom. They're secular humanistic to the core. Disney was a a very proud humanist. Yet it doesn't mean that God hasn't given a measure of wisdom to all humanity. 
Wisdom isn't just intelligence. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge effectively for daily living. It's taking that intelligence and that knowledge and applying it in your daily living. That's why uh, you see more wisdom in old people than young. They've had more experience, more time to learn, hopefully. They're teachable and they're learning and learning from their mistakes. When James says, who is wise and understanding among you, this word understanding in the Greeks only found here in James. We can find it in other Greek literature. And this kind of understanding always means possessing highly skilled, specialized knowledge. There were musicians up here today. They have special understanding in how to apply um, the, uh, the rules of music. I don't even know how to say it because I don't got it, people. There's wise doctors, wise teachers, wise lawyers. All this special gifting people have, they take that knowledge that any of us could have access to by going to the local public library, but you don't want me doing heart surgery on you. I don't have that special wisdom and understanding. But you ask me to come up here and exposit God's Word, and people tell me this is the scariest thing they could think they'd ever have to do, and it's like the most fun thing that I get to do because God's given me a measure of wisdom and understanding this area. It's not something that we should take pride in our special gifts. We acknowledge that God's given us these gifts for His glory, and we use them all together in the body of Christ for God's glory and for us to grow into the image of Christ. So keep me off the piano. <laughs> In our day and age, a, a day of, of relativism, tolerance, multiculturalism, the spirit of the age says everybody's wisdom is just as good as anybody else's wisdom. Until you actually go out and get a job. Yeah. And the employer says, yeah, sorry, we don't want your wisdom here. But we're teaching our kids in our schools that their, their wisdom, their ideas, their opinions are, are equivalent to one another because we understand that it steps on toes to say I'm wiser than you are. People say it's not fair, the SAT test, it's not fair. Folks, it's an aptitude test. It's testing aptitude, not the knowledge that you've learned. That's what your GPA is for. SAT is an aptitude test. If you, if you can't do math, I don't want you building bridges. There's other wonderful things for you to do to contribute to society. And I don't want engineers doing a few other things I can think of. They're too black and white. So, if you look on Facebook or you look at now most of the newspapers are online. You can read New York Times, LA Times on, online. And after an article, they want comments. And nobody seems to be hesitant to give their comments. An article will be posted, and in the New York Times, within five hours, there will be six, seven hundred comments. And these people are intelligent. I could tell they, their vocabulary, the way they put a sentence together, very intelligent, but the substance of what they're saying is so moronic sometimes. And you're like, no wonder we can't seem to accomplish you know, get over our differences here in our country because we're no longer all centered around uh, applying godly wisdom to life. It's every man for themselves. 
What's the strangest book of the Bible you could think of that deals with Israel's history? The Judges. I mean, there are just some wacky stories in there. But the end of the book of Judges said, in those days there was no king of Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what you get when intelligent people cut themselves off from the wisdom of God and go it their own. So this is what James is talking about. There's this inclination in all of us to think we know what's best, we have the most wisdom, we have the best way to live life, and nobody's listening to anybody else, and hundreds of special interest groups all vying to make their particular issue the most important issue that we should all be paying attention to and throwing money at. This isn't how God's people and His church should operate, though. Let's talk more about wisdom so we understand a little more deeply what wisdom is. Because the Hebrews loved wisdom, the Greeks loved wisdom. In fact, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. The next slide, very small print. Sorry, I'll read it out loud for you. This is from Wikipedia, the source of all wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to think and act using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. So you're taking all that and thinking on those things and acting according to those things. Wisdom has been regarded as one of the four cardinal virtues, and as a virtue, it is a habit or disposition to perform the action with the highest degree of adequacy under any given circumstance. This implies a possession of knowledge or the seeking thereof. You know, so it's like, well, I don't have enough knowledge to do this wisely. I've got to go out and, and get that knowledge. The seeking thereof in order to apply it to the given circumstance. This involves an understanding of people. So you kind of understand what make people tick. Uh, things, events, situations, and the willingness, as well as the ability to apply perception, judgment, and action in keeping with the understanding of what is the optimal course of action. Here, there's where we start getting into trouble. Part of inherent in the definition of wisdom is that there's an optimal way to live life. There's an optimal response in any given circumstance. And we all come into this world thinking we know the optimal response. And you can see where the fireworks begin. If you're married, you understand. Everything was great and there was all this sharing and listening and what a wonderful person. And of course they're wonderful and they're wise and they're intelligent. I wouldn't marry a fool. And then you get home from the honeymoon and you're like, really? That's how you make toasts. Okay. (laughs) And if you'll fight over toast, you'll fight over just about anything. As soon as you say, hey, let me show you another way, what what are you saying? There's a better way. In fact, there's a best way. (laughs) Doesn't lead to healthy relationships. 
It often requires control of one's emotional reactions, or the Greeks called it the passions, so that the universal principle of reason prevails to determine one's action. In short, wisdom is a disposition to find the truth coupled with an optimum judgment. So I've got truth, and now I'm going to use my judgment and put them together as to what action should be taken in order to look to deliver the correct outcome. There is a right way to do everything. There is a right way to think about everything. You can see why this chapter is so important and why this is the pinnacle of James's letter. This is where the rubber meets the road, people. In fact, when he gets to chapter 4, 1, he says, where do fights and quarrels come from among us? So we say then, well, let's not pursue wisdom because it causes strife and envy and fighting. No, that's not the solution. And honestly, even if you said that's what you were doing, you lie. You will always think that you have the most wisdom. God highly values wisdom for his people. God highly values wisdom for his people. He didn't call us to be a group of fools. But our wisdom ought to come from him and be motivated by love for him and wanting to glorify and magnify his name with his wisdom. And like Matt said this morning, when people say, give an answer for the hope that is within you, part of that is you're living a compelling life, hopefully, if you're living a life of godly wisdom. And people are like, where did you get that? And you humbly say, it's from God. And he gives me the grace to live it and the grace when I stumble to do better. And you can have this too. It's for everybody. It's a free gift. Not for us to say, well, I do what the Bible says. That's why I have this superior life. So, indeed, you could have godly wisdom, but the wrong attitude. And who's our author? James. I'm like Paul Peter. I went through the whole, the whole list. James is even saying that if you have the wrong attitude, if there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's not wisdom from God either. You may have the right answer, but that, you didn't get it from God. And because you're not acknowledging that it came from God, you're going to take credit for God's wisdom, and that's not godly wisdom at all. God, God highly values wisdom for his people. Before they went into the promised land, God inspired Moses to say this to his people, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and understanding. This is where James is getting this wisdom and understanding language from. This will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. He's not just pointing to the benefits that the godly wisdom will bring. He's pointing to the statutes and judgments of God so that God gets the credit and the people will be amazed 
Israel was supposed to be this nation that lived different than any other nation, that other nations would say, wow, what is the source of this great wisdom and understanding? Our God and his judgments, his statutes, his commands. That's the way it's supposed to work. And when we look at Israel's history, they go through periods of doing just that and then periods of not doing that. When Israel became a monarchy, King Saul, not a wise king at all. David, much better because he was a uh, man after God's own heart. But then we get to King Solomon and he asked God for wisdom, for godly wisdom in order to lead God's people. And God blessed Solomon with more wisdom than any human being had ever been blessed with until Christ came along and took on human flesh. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. That breadth of mind is he had wisdom on a vast variety of subjects. A real renaissance man. Proverbs 3.13, Solomon writes, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. There's that wisdom and understanding again. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. You hear this language James is echoing in his letter. What does he say at the end of the section we're looking at today? After all this talk about Godly wisdom and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace comes from God's people living according to godly wisdom with humility. Where you see an absence of peace, there is an absence of godly wisdom and humility. The Jewish people, because of God's covenant with them, have been blessed with amazing wisdom to the point where many nations are jealous of them and hate them for it. But in all honesty, sometimes they're smug about it. And we can be too. We've been blessed with great wisdom as Christians and sometimes we're smug about it. And instead of attracting people to that wisdom, it's a real turnoff. Jews are famously a famously accomplished group. They make up only uh, two-tenths of a percent of the world population, but they, are, they make up 54% of the world chess champions, 27% of the Nobel physics uh, laureates, 31% of the medicine laureates. They gave us Albert Einstein, but they also gave us Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Yes. Very, very intelligent men. Marx and Freud were no idiots, very intelligent men. Really changed, paradigm shifted the way people thought about economics and the, and the human psyche. Not for the better, because they detached their thinking from godly wisdom. They took that blessing of knowledge and understanding and removed God from the equation. Jews make up 2% of the U.S. population, but 21% of the Ivy League student bodies. 
So much for affirmative action, right? I mean, they're still getting into the good colleges, these folks are. In fact, if you don't, you probably bring shame to your, to your family. It is an expectation that you will excel. There are 26% of the Kennedy Center honorees, 37% of the Academy Award-winning directors, 38% of those on a recent Business Week list of leading philanthropists, so they make a lot of money and then they, they spend it generously, sometimes for the good of humanity and sometimes just to advance their own cause. There are 51% of the Pulitzer Prize winners for nonfiction. So they tell a good story because they win Academy Awards for Best Director, but they also write really good nonfiction. It's hard for you to tell, but because of anti-Semitism in our country, many Jews change their last name to get rid of the overt Jewishness from their last name. Unfortunately, though, the same Jews who gave us Hollywood and Steven Spielberg also gave us the entire porn industry. It broke my heart to read that, that God's chosen people um, started the industry, used their amazing marketing skills to now make it a $2 billion a year industry. Israel ranks 11th in the world. The tiny little, that tiny little mass of land is 11th in the world in national wealth, but ranks first in the world in income disparity. There haves and have-nots. There is a wide gap. 22% of Jews in a recent Pew research uh, survey says they are now unbelievers, atheists. And if you break it down demographically and take 18 to 30-year-olds, that number jumps to 36%. So, hey, we're accomplished people. Glory to God? What God? This is us. We're just special people. God's blessings for Israel are grounded in His covenantal love for those who seek God and seek godly wisdom. So you wonder, why are they such an accomplished people and why does God seem to keep blessing Israel? Because he made a covenant with them and God doesn't break his covenant. He's, uh, God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. And on, on it goes between the blessings and the curses. And we see that in Israel's history. Great times of apostasy, and God punishes them, often through pagan nations. But there's always a remnant Always a group of people who love God and love His wisdom and are seeking God's face and seeking His wisdom. And the same is true for the church. 
James may have originally written a letter to a group of mostly Jews who were professing faith in Christ, but the letter speaks to us now as God's people. And who among you fancies themselves as wise and understanding? James says, let's look at your fruits. This preaches to me, it preaches to you, it's preaching to all of us. It is a corrective of our uh, arrogant self-sufficiency, our arrogant notion that we know best, and even our arrogance to say, well, I am better because I've got God's word here. How then, what makes the difference? What makes the difference between attaining this godly wisdom and and settling for man-centered wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You must fear the Lord to gain godly wisdom. This reverent fear of Him that He is the source of all truth, all knowledge, all wisdom. And part of that fear, that reverential fear, turns into a loving kind of fear. Respect. A loving respect. Trusting God that His ways are indeed best. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Look in the Hebrew parallelism. Solomon equates being wise in your own eyes to turning towards evil. So he says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Being wise in your own eyes always leads to to evil. Always leads to evil. James says it leads to every evil thing. Every evil kind of thing. So where do we get wisdom from? You know we get it from the Bible, but even more so the Bible incarnate, the Word incarnate. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is our wisdom. You want to know what wisdom looks like? Look at Jesus. Look at his life, study his life, study the pattern of his life, study the words, study the attitudes of his heart. That's what wisdom looks like. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, by the way, notice it's by his doing, not ours, you are in Christ Jesus. That ought to keep you humble right away. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all these things to us. Without them, oh, we may have a form of wisdom, a form of righteousness, a form of sanctification, but it's not from God. Without Christ, it's self-righteousness, and God is opposed and offended by self-righteousness. He's opposed to self-help sanctification. I pulled up my own bootstraps. I made myself the great man that I am today. God is opposed to that kind of pride. There are no self-made men. And certainly, you can have a counterfeit redemption, but it won't be redemption from God and not the one he'll acknowledge on that final day when we stand before him. You can't purchase your way into the kingdom. It's been purchased for you by the blood of Christ. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, this is Jesus speaking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, 
which is where James got a lot of his material. Whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man. There's your difference between wisdom and foolishness. Do you hear the words of Christ and act accordingly? So that first point, again, is everybody thinks they're wise and everybody does have a measure of wisdom, but what kind of wisdom do you have? That's the more important question. Nobody's saying in here that this room's filled with fools. We all have wisdom. You you made it here this morning. You got dressed, you got in the car, you made it here. It'd be easy to ignore this teaching by saying, well, look, you know, I can find out there people with less wisdom than me and say, that's what lack of wisdom looks like. This is what wisdom looks like. James is elevating it. No, there's a godly kind of wisdom and an earthly, natural, in some cases, demonic kind of wisdom. How will we know? He says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The behavior and deeds point to action. The gentleness points to heart, to motive. You can have godly behavior and godly deeds and an ugly, ambitious, selfish prideful heart, and James is saying, that is not the wisdom from above. He wants us to be on the lookout for double-mindedness also. Sometimes, some areas of our life, we see godly wisdom, and then other areas, it's right back to my own wisdom. He doesn't want this intermingling, as Nathan preached last week, can, can a spring spew forth bitter water and sweet? No, it should not be. Sanctification is this process of putting off manly wisdom and putting on godly wisdom. So this whole book, he's been encouraging us to look at our lives, look at our wisdom, and see first that we're really in the faith. We have the faith that saves, not the dead kind of faith. Secondly, if you are in the faith... Are you moving forward in your sanctification? Are you putting off your old, natural, carnal wisdom and embracing godly wisdom? And are you doing it with humility? Is there gentleness? Different kinds of wisdom will result in certain kinds of behavior. You can look at your behavior and your attitudes and determine if where there's godly wisdom and where there isn't godly wisdom. Totally... Makes sense. You'll know a tree by its fruits, Jesus said. Let's look at this word gentleness. Because I think in our culture, gentleness is often seen as a liability. And yet, Jesus said he was gentle. Gentleness isn't weakness, it's meekness, which is strength under control. Godly wisdom is gentle because I don't have to puff myself up 
to prove that my wisdom is better than yours. There is a settled, humble, gentle approach to your conversations. You're not looking around comparing yourself to others and having to make yourself feel smarter or wiser than others. It's also, though, not, well, I don't need to puff myself up because I am smarter and wiser. Why get all angry about it? It's just a matter of fact. It's neither of those attitudes. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus said in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Gentleness, this strength under control, typifies God's people, especially those who have advanced in godly wisdom. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And what's the one we don't like? Self-control, that's the, that's the one. Gentleness, a fruit of the Spirit. When choosing elders, Paul says, don't choose anyone who's pugnacious. Pugnaciousness doesn't belong on a board that's supposed to be represented by godly wisdom. Not a young convert, not a new convert. Otherwise, he'd be tempted to be puffed up. So, gentleness is an important aspect of the Christian life. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You want wisdom? You've got to take Jesus' yoke on here. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. You cannot be a Christian without putting the yoke of Christ on you. Well, I don't really like yokes on me. I don't like being told what to do. I don't want a heavy piece of wood directing my paths. Then you can't follow Christ. You can read the Bible and glean some really good advice about how to live, but you won't do it consistently and with the right heart motive until God changes your heart. You'll just buck at His yoke. He says, put my yoke upon you, it is, I, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because people, there's nothing more exhausting in this world than having to be the smartest man on the planet, the wisest man on the planet and proving it day after day. It is exhausting because you set yourself up in a position where everybody is waiting for you to fail. So they can say, aha! It's exhausting self-righteousness to work your way into heaven through your perfect wisdom. It won't get you in there. It's the way the Pharisees lived life. They had the wisdom from God, but they supplanted it with the wisdom from man. Look at our superior lives. Look, look at our holy lives. Too bad everyone can't live the way we do. That would solve all of our problems. Have you ever heard these attitudes coming from the echo chamber of your own heart? Be honest. You don't come out and say it, but boy, if everyone lived like me, that would fix my marriage. That would fix my family. That would fix the church. That would fix our nation. And we've become a nation now of people just shouting at the top of their lungs where nobody's listening to anyone saying, if you would just listen to me and do it my way, 
everything would be fixed. When Christ is gently saying, if everyone would listen to me, everyone would listen to me, we ought to listen to him, take his yoke on, humble ourselves. I wanted to specifically go out on a limb this morning and point out a a very specific area. I already talked marriage, the whole toast analogy. James says, worldly wisdom produces uh, jealousy, selfishness, disorder, and evil. He says, if you have bitter jealousy, if you, if you think you're really wise and understanding, and you see bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. He's saying the truth is, you don't have godly wisdom if those things abound. So don't lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, it's worldly, it's fleshly, natural, it's demonic, it's it's from Satan. Who are our enemies? The world, our flesh, and, and the devil, tempting us to avoid godly wisdom and elevate our wisdom over and above God's wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, gee, he repeats these words, you think these are important, Jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There is disorder in every evil thing. The the pride coin has two sides. Two sides. The jealous side and the selfish ambition side. Let me take maybe a typical uh, marriage issue on how to spend money. All right? Plenty of fights over spending money. Now, let's say somebody in the marriage, whether it be man or the woman, has a better idea about how to spend the money. And the other one knows they're right, knows the other person is right. The one side of the pride coin goes, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. If I, if I admit you're right here, then that's it. You're going to think you're right all the time. So I'm going to dig in my heels. The, other, the selfish ambition side of the coin is like, well, of course I'm right. And you're in the way of me living this great, wise life. Selfish ambition is the pride of arrogance that steps on other people to elevate my own wisdom as the wisdom. And we understand arrogance when we see it as pride, but we don't often see self-pity as pride. But it is. It's no less ugly to God. It's the pride of, you know, woe is me. Everyone has it better than I do. And and so you, you don't want to listen to godly wisdom either because it's admitting that that you're not as smart as you think you are. You're not smart as other people, not as wise as other people. And so you end up with problems in your relationships. Somebody's always playing the role of the selfish ambition and someone plays the other role. And the roles can flip-flop depending on the issue. This happens in parenting too. You understand why... This is a powder cake, people. You are saying, when you say I have wisdom, that my way of doing things is better than everyone else's way. You're, you're, hmm. 
And you may, you may actually be a very humble person. You may say it very gently. And if the other person is stuck in pride, then they don't like hearing that because what does that automatically mean when you, when you say, hey, I want to show you a, a different way? Well, why would we need a different way if it wasn't better than my way? So when you try to teach people or offer... Wisdom, even if you do it humbly, sometimes in their pride they say, oh, I'm not listening to you. You, th- you think your way's better. And I see families, husband and wife, fight over best way to parent their kids. Or I'll see husband and wife be united on how to parent kids, but set themselves up as we parent our children better than everybody else. Ooh, that one, nobody, nobody likes that. And then they say, well, wisdom will be vindicated by her children. And they take that literally. When my children turn out superior to yours, my superior wisdom will be vindicated. And your kids pick up on that, and either they become pharisaical or prideful, or they go, I want none of that. In fact, I'm going to embarrass you. I will rebel. That's just too much pressure. So I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and say that I highly recommend the Growing Kids God's Way parenting curriculum with this caveat. It is good, godly wisdom. It was written at a time in our culture when evangelicalism said, we don't really know how to raise our kids. Let's ask Dr. Spock, the secular child psychologist. And the Ezos said, no, 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 we have, we have godly wisdom, how to parent our kids. And they wrote this wonderful curriculum, and it was the first of its kind really circulating. And wonderful things have come from that curriculum. Here's my caveat. Gary struggles with good, better, and best. And he teaches good, better, and best. And he teaches it in such a way that there really is a best action for every parenting situation. And guess what? He knows what the best is. And if you've gone through the curriculum, you say, man, this is great teaching, and this is really helpful, and he's, he's a little smug. He comes off as a little smug. And if you've picked up on that, then you've picked up on something that he's been working on for a long time. I don't know how he's doing on it. All I know is multiple churches have asked him to have to leave. So he goes from one church to the next, and everyone gets excited about growing kids, and then it turns into, if you're not doing growing kids, and you're doing it wrong. And division happens in the church. And the elders talk to him and say, hey, you need to tone it down and be more gracious, and there's other good biblical ways to parent. And he digs in his heels, and they say, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to go. And you know, I hope and pray that he turns the corner. Hope and pray he he turns the corner. Last I checked, though, he's still struggling with it. I don't know him personally. I haven't talked to him. I haven't called him, so it wouldn't be fair for me to say with any authority. I just know it's something he has struggled with a long time. And my fear is that if you only go through Growing Kids God's Way and never read another book on parenting, that flavor will rub off on you. And you will say, boy, if we do it just the right way, 
people will look at our kids and say, wow, you are a very wise parent. Instead of, wow, what a great, merciful, wise God you have. So that's intended to start a little dialogue amongst yourselves, not flood me with emails of either we hate Gary or we don't, or we love Gary. That's not what we're talking about here. There is good material in that parenting curriculum. Don't stop there. There's lots of good books. Talk to people who've gone ahead of you. Glean godly wisdom from others. Ask them to say, what mistakes did you make and how can we avoid those mistakes? I wanted to use that as an example of you could use, you can use biblical principles, and yet if your heart motivation gets off of Christ and onto proving that I am a wise person, you could do some damage. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance exist only when God is out of the picture. I would love to see a lot more of the gospel in a parenting curriculum. Not at the beginning, make sure everyone's saved, now let's move on. We need the gospel every chapter, every paragraph, because our hearts are that wicked that if we set the gospel aside and say, all right, I'm saved, then pride comes roaring back in. You... you, you You can't have selfish ambition and bitter jealousy at the foot of the cross. There's no room for it there. You know how ridiculous it would sound as Christians for us to say, oh yeah, we've got the best religious system. I mean, our Bible teaches us that God is infinite. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's been here from beginning to end. He's the sovereign God that's in control of everything. And I am just a wretch. I am a fallen man. I don't even know the depths of my fallenness. And I couldn't do anything about my fallenness. And God had to reach down in His grace and save me and stick that in your pipe and smoke it, people. Yeah! I'm, I'm awesome! It's ridiculous. We're professing faith in a God and in a Bible that reveals to us to be completely fallen and unable to save ourselves. There's no room for pride. There's no room for selfish ambition. But if you take your eyes off Christ and put your eyes on one another, here comes the selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy. Oh, you think you're smarter than me. Well, I'll show you. No, turn to God and say, well, who's smarter? Who's wiser? It's, it's, it's no contest. Point number four, then the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The weird words that you can't read at the bottom is Greek that's been transliterated with English letters. Notice all the words James chooses begin with the same letter. Not only are these the right words, but in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James is creating through language the idea that there's wholeness in harmony where godly wisdom abounds. And then the last three words there all begin with, with alpha, with A. 
Whereas when you go to the other list, there's disorder, the words are kind of jumbled, there's no rhyme or reason, they don't begin with the same letter, there's disharmony, discord, there's no peace. It leads to disorder, and then from disorder you get every kind of evil thing with wisdom that is natural, demonic, and from the world. But the, the wisdom from God, it's first pure, first and foremost, if there's any taint of sin, it's not wisdom from God. It's first pure, it's holy, and then it's peaceable. That's the next on the list. It's got to be peaceable. We're not saying to compromise truth for the sake of peace. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. We're saying that amongst God's people, saved people, all led by the same Holy Spirit, all reading the same Bible, the way we apply the Bible is the wisdom, there ought to be peace. Even if you have a different way of applying it, but the same truth that I have, I'm not saying you interpreted the passage completely opposite than I did. That, that's not godly wisdom. But if we come to the same interpretation of the passage but we have different ways of applying it, that's not to say that my wisdom is better than your wisdom. And so we should be able to sit down at any moment, in any room, as Christians led by the same Holy Spirit with the same wisdom from God and talk through with peace and gentleness and be reasonable and extending mercy and accepting mercy. And there ought to be good fruit no wavering from the truth and no living in hypocrisy. We can, we can do this. There doesn't need to be the kind of conflicts that lead to division and hatred, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. At the end of the day, I may say, wow, that is a wiser way to do that than I've been doing it. Thank you for that. Or you may say, well, you know what? I see merit in that. that thank you for, for your wisdom. That's how we grow together. But as soon as we walk around saying, there's good, better, and best, and I have best, that's it. No room. No room for peace there. When godly wisdom directs God's people, there is peace and righteousness. I put three translations up here because it's very hard to translate this, this sentence. The King James actually does it the most literally. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Well, you don't actually sow fruit. You sow seed. And so the New American Standard puts the word seed in there. And the ESV uses the word harvest. But you get the idea. If it's wisdom from above, if it's godly wisdom, then the purpose is to make peace among God's people. If we're all controlled by the wisdom of God and not selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, there will be, there will be peace. There will be peace. We'll grow together. We're going to skip the last three slides and save them for next time. But start reading James chapter 4. Because there should be peace, and there's not. So, why is there no peace? Why are there quarrels? Why is there conflict? James is going to answer that question next. We'll cover these three slides next time and look at the answer together at what makes for conflict. Let's pray. Heavenly Father...
source of all wisdom. You alone are wisdom incarnate, Jesus. We are not. Forgive us for taking on the mantle of all wise, all knowing. Thank you for the gifts you've given us, intelligence, special skills. Forgive us when we look to those things as proof of our superiority. Forgive us when we assume we have the best way of doing everything. Forgive us when we elevate our own preferences to the place of wisdom, when really it's just a personal preference. May we be teachable, humble people who put the yoke of Christ on gladly and follow Christ and let him direct our paths. May peace reign in your house and in our homes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.